Why, hello there. It's me, Jeremy, your favorite bald dude telling you about Standard and Strange, a store and a brand with simple rules. Sell clothes they themselves would wear, manufacture it ethically, and build it to last. From boots made in Oregon to loop wheel garments made in Japan, find all the best clothes for your wardrobe at Standard and Strange. Standardandstrange.com. Hey folks, it's Jeremy Kirkland. You're listening to Blamo. How are we all doing? All right, we're back. And I'm back. I'm back from New York. I was there this uh this past week doing some doing some things. Uh recording some pods, actually. Lots of stuff. Um visited the homies over at Standard and Strange. There's a big there's a big pod coming out about boots, which will actually be really interesting. Um we had some parties. There's so much stuff. I'm gonna I'm gonna recap it all over on the solo pod on the Patreon. Um, you'll hear it. it'll be great. But this week is Johan Lamb. Now, this is there's so much to dive into on here, but Johan is the co-owner of 316. He's the co-owner of Self Edge New York and Self Edge LA. He's the founder and co-owner of Maps. He do, he does a lot. Um, but he's more interested in being a dad, and there are many many reasons why. I mean, this is it's it was a great pod. We really just got into it. Um. Johan and I discuss his life growing up in Northern California, dealing with dad issues, secret fit pics, his journey in clothes, claiming the color orange in school, avoiding hype, how slow and steady is the good life, and 20 years of 316. Let's go. What did you have for breakfast? I did not really eat breakfast this morning. I got up. I had a coffee. Okay. Um, because I dropped my AirPods at the cafe yesterday, so I swung back through, grabbed a coffee, and didn't eat anything until the lunch that we just had. Oh, dang. Yeah. Do you not eat breakfast? Sometimes. I will always have a coffee in the morning before I leave the house. Because you, you make your coffee at home. You're one of the, like, barista boys that, like, you have the machine and the gear, and you can make the, the flowers. I try. Um, <laughs> latte art is one of the hardest things I've ever tried to do in my life. No. Seriously. I have been trying to pour latte art for like three years now. Okay. And there will be days where it'll just come out like pure vomit. Like it's so, it's like, it's so difficult. Is it, are you a full fat milk guy or do you do like the cashew milk? And Because from I, what I hear. It makes a difference. It does. It does. Um, I... And I, I drink lactate, lactose-free milk, but it's, I drink 2% because I, I can't, if I drink whole milk every, like, I'm not crazy lactose intolerant, but I try not to drink mm-hmm. it if I don't need to. Mm-hmm. So I just buy lactate for myself and um, I drink 2% in my coffee. Okay. So it's not whole milk. That makes a difference. Yep. Um, it's a home machine, which makes a difference, but also... I was told um, when people train baristas, they usually go through eight gallons of milk in one session. What? Because and, of like the errors and the, the practicing? or the- Yeah, that's just like you, you go through repetition. You just make coffee after coffee after coffee and you go through eight jugs, eight gallons of milk. Mm-hmm. And by the end of it, you've sort of figured out the... the you're, you're also able to make micro adjustments as you go. If you're doing 
that many pours back to back to back. And so for me, like I make one or two coffees at most a day. I make one for myself. Sometimes I I will make my wife's. Sometimes she'll make it herself. Sometimes like the in-laws are staying with us. Sometimes I'll make one for my father-in-law. But one a day is not enough back to back to back repetition. And sometimes I will hit it and sometimes I will not. So you got to like get in the groove. That's what you're saying. Yeah. 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 And it's just like, I'm never going to go buy eight gallons of milk because it's so wasteful (laughs) to like try and pour especially la milk la milk and then (laughs) and some people will to to practice in other ways they'll put soap in water Mm -hmm. and they'll practice their pouring that way anyways um i enjoy it i'm not very good at it um but that's usually what i have for breakfast is a coffee in the morning and then i'll eat whatever leftover scraps my kids leave on their plate you have like four or five different jobs. So I yeah. help me here. So because I'm going to repeat what I think I know. Okay. And then you're going to basically tell me whether or not I'm okay. right or wrong. So you do maps. Yeah. Me and sense. my wife. Yeah. Okay. So that's you and your wife. Mm-hmm. You are a co-owner of SelfEdge. Mm-hmm. LA and New York. LA and New York. Yeah. Okay. Didn't know that. Yeah. Um, and then you're obviously a co-owner, co-founder 316. Yeah. And so, Co-owner, not co-founder. Okay. Andrew founded the company. And I hopped on very early on, but I don't call myself a founder. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, yeah. so that three different roles. Yeah. And then don't, do you do another thing? Uh, I do some consulting for other brands um, from time to time, but that's basically it. Those three things, but mostly I'm just a dad now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's well. And I, I think this is something interesting because we talked about this a little bit last night and I think this is great. Like, because a lot of people are like, oh, man, you're always working. Like, people say this to me. Yeah. Because after the kids go to bed, I will usually work. I'll re- Sometimes I, like, most of the other, like, Patreon shows and stuff, we'll record at, like, 8.30, 9 o'clock at night. Yeah. You know. Um, the only time you can find quiet in the house. Bingo. Yeah. Like, and and that's like, oh, you're always working. Do you ever get time off? And it's like, one, well, it doesn't really matter because I kind of, I love what I'm doing. Yeah. But also, I still think, and I'm not projecting here, but, like, I get to see my kids every day. Mm-hmm. Like my dad was on the road like the first six, seven years of my life. Mm. So like I see my kids in the morning. I see them at night. I deal with all their bullshit, all their tantrums. Mm-hmm. They're out the door. And so like I'm kind of the number one dad, even though they're asleep and I'm burning the midnight oil. So yeah. like, is that the same for you? Because you were saying like, oh, well, you know, I'm only there for a little few hours because yeah. you're still doing all this stuff. Yeah, yeah. I um I mean truly I have sacrificed my work a lot over the past couple of years since I've become a father. Okay. And I've done that and and Andrew knows this because being a good father for both of us is very very important. Both and, of you as in you and Andrew. Me and Andrew. Okay. And for him it's different now his kids are a little bit older they're in school they're much more self-sufficient. Mhm. But he had a time when his kids were really young and both of his boys are pretty close in age also where it was just a, he was in it. It was a really tough time for him Mm -hmm. uh, to balance work and Mm -hmm. home life. And that's where I've been the past six years and and probably for a couple more years. And the thing that I think about often is um, some of these dudes that are out there in our industry and in all sorts of industries who are killing it and, and they're they're out there. They're extremely outside. They're at the events. They're traveling the world. I know their fathers also, 
I know they have families at home, and I just can't imagine being the level of father that I want to be. Ooh, and being that out there, and um, and so that is a conscious dis- decision that I made when we had our first son. And part of it is going back to what you said about your father. My father um, was he traveled the world six to eight months out of the year. Wait, what did he do? My father was <clears throat> a pastor when I was born, but um, ended up um, traveling the world to speak. He wrote, published many books to speak and to train missionaries around the world and to be on the missions field. So he is one of the most traveled people that I know. He went to over 200 countries in his lifetime. He, um, we had a spice rack at home when I was a kid. It was a little like Lazy Susan situation, multi-level spice rack. Uh And he would bring home coins from every country that he went to. And this whole thing was filled with all these different coins from around the world. That's great. Oh, dude. He would bring home like sand, like star-shaped sand from Madagascar and like seashells and like coins and so all. So he's stuff. going like third, well, two hundred countries. You're, you're he obviously going to hit He would go world. everywhere. He went to, he went to, you know, the ends of the earth. Truly, he went to, um, he went to minister to like this head hunting tribe in Burma, Myanmar. Um, you know, like some of his stories. That this is for another podcast. But sure, he, sure, sure. He he um went all over the world, and so. Um, I don't hold that against him. Um, but I anymore. Um, yes, not anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I'm in. I'm in the same boat. That's only. I don't hold it against him anymore. But I do recognize that he made a conscious decision that his life's work, his ministry, in some ways, was more important than his family. Oh man, shit. Okay, right. That is. And, and, um, my father passed away in 2020 from cancer. I, um, there was a lot of healing towards the end, especially cause he had, he had terminal cancer for a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. And there was a lot of things for us to work through. And I think my sisters had a, a different relationship with him and, and different things that they were working through. But, um, I accepted and understood the decision that he made. When? Um, I think even before he was diagnosed with cancer, I, I came to peace with it, but I also decided for myself that I was not going to do that. Mm. And so, um, I want to be there for my kids. I want to be the soccer mom. I want to drive my kids to basketball practice, to swimming lessons, to drive them to school, drop them off from school, you know, pick them, pick them up from school, all of that. Do you think that's a, like a redemptive thing? Because I feel like, I've said this in other pods, I feel like every generation, the parenting is a whiplash from the previous, right? Where I, I have that same thing, it, it negatively and positively. Mm-hmm. Like, I, my dad was a pastor too. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say, you know, there was a lot of stuff I wanted as a child mm-hmm. that I didn't get because he was pastoring Mm -hmm. you know people i remember a guy came up to me once and he was like you know your dad 
your dad, you don't know what your dad has done for me. Mm. And I was like, I know. I don't <laughs> right. fucking know what he did for you, <laughs> you asshole. And why couldn't you have been a normal person instead yeah. of some shitty dude that my dad had to go help? And I, I was really mad. Yeah. And I remember, he's like, you know, your dad saved, he helped save my marriage. Mm. He did all these things. And I was also bummed because I was like, this is a rich dude. It was super rich and he had all these things and like we're sitting here eating beans and cornbread mm. again, whatever it was. And it like made me, and I'm, you know, I want to be very conscious of how I'm doing this because I'm not trying to project <laughs> it all. But like it, I really wrestled with this. But I say this now that over time I was like, that's really cool. Like I think every, <laughs> every, when you think about like your, yeah, this tacky, like, but the legacy that you have, you want to be impactful to others. You want to, you know, change the world, your whole Steve Jobs bullshit, of, of, you know, but like, I think that's something that I was like, okay, was I being selfish or was I deprived? Mm. And that's something that I wrestle with a ton now when I think about the dad to tie this, you know, in a bow, like the dad that I wouldn't be to my kids. Mm. Cause I'm like, no, 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 I'm living the dream. Like I get it, the freak out of a bill or whatever it is, or waiting for a payment from some vendor or something. But like, dude, like I'm, I've put my kids to bed mm. and, hopefully i don't know because they're young whenever they're talking to their therapist mm -hmm. about how crazy their dad was they're gonna be like well but he was there we did have i did have the ego waffles that i wanted or you know something like that right and it's it's weird because i feel like a lot of us will justify our behaviors in this like i'm fixing something that felt incorrect mm -hmm. and i'm trying to use that very specifically yeah 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 I mean, the, uh, I think in my adult life, I've come to understand that my parents didn't have the same tools and the same vocabulary that I do to be a parent. My parents only knew what their parents were for them as examples. Right. And, yep, my, yep, yep. and so like, it's also like, I'm talking about like, you know, first generation immigrants that yeah. are coming to North America. You know where they come from. My dad was born in China. My mom was born in Vietnam. They got married in Hong Kong. They went to Indonesia for ten plus years to serve there. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, so this so was everyone not in, like everyone in my family, the five of us, we were all born in different countries. My dad was born in China. Mom in Vietnam. Oldest sister in Hong Kong when it was still under British occupancy. My sister in Pasadena. I was born in Edmonton, Canada. Oh. So very international family. Um, I got to travel a lot when I was a kid because my sisters are quite a bit older than me. They went away to college. My parents were still going on these trips mm -hmm. and couldn't just leave me at home as like an eight-year-old for a month. So I would go with them to Cambodia, to um, Indonesia, to Singapore, like all over Asia, China, Northern Thailand. We spent a summer serving at an orphanage with no running water in Northern Thailand. So I had a very like, how old were you when that happened? I, every memory of a kid, I just say I'm eight. I don't remember. No, that's <laughs> sure. I don't, sure. I don't remember exactly, but it was probably around that age. Yeah. So old enough to remember, but young enough to like, I don't remember everything yeah. that happened. Okay. And then going back to the dad thing, like I always had a great deal of respect for him. And I, I didn't resent him that like the, the experience that you had that he, was important and helpful to other people. I was proud of that fact. 
But I think the difference for me was that I found validation and attention outside of my family. Like I found it from friends or I found it from girls or whatever. Like Mm. I was able to. Was it good enough? For me, yeah. Yeah. It, it, it was, it is what gave me my sense of self-worth and gave me self-confidence when I didn't, when that always, wasn't always instilled in me by my family. Yeah. In the ways that I would, that a child would normally need their parents to. Mm. It was also like, I, I, I was living this very like dichotomous life, right? I'm, I'm living speaking Chinese at home with, oh, parents, wow. okay. with parents that are very Chinese, very traditionally Chinese, very Christian. Okay. And then also growing up in a town of 40,000 people where I'm like the only Asian kid in school. What town? Uh, we grew up in Petaluma, California, which is about an hour north of San Francisco. They call it the egg basket of the world. Wait, is this like Chico area? Uh, not quite. It's, okay. it's just west of Napa County. So like kind oh, of yeah, wine, yeah. wine country, very yeah, yeah. agricultural. So it was like a farm town that was becoming very suburban mm. when we lived there. So we lived like in a really nice new neighborhood, but it was like track homes, very safe. It was a great place to grow up. But um, yeah, I was like one of, I don't even remember how many Asian kids, like just a handful of Asian kids growing up. So I had my home life. And then I had my outside of home life, which was school and playing sports and and all of those other things. And so I always had to be uh, a shapeshifter in a Mm -hmm. sense. Like you have to put on different masks to be able to survive in different scenarios. Mm. Um, And so what I, the attention or whatever that maybe some people would need from their parents, I got from like, you know, from school, from from my friends at school and from teachers or like that, you know, that other side of life. Yeah. Damn. I, I mean, I think it sounds like you processed a lot of this really well though. Cause I mean, I think even myself, like I don't think I was able to like, you know, cause I want, I want to be clear. Like I don't resent my dad, but I, I did. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I don't realize that I resented him until later when I, re-examined behavior i exhibited sure from that time yeah like it was it was an unconscious resentment yeah like while you're in it it's just normal teenage angst bingo just like no like no matter what your kids are going to hate you at some point in life you know like yeah, yeah, yeah. we think we're the best dads in the world but <laughs> we're going to mess up our kids in other ways you know yeah. we're going to say i love you too much whereas my right? dad never didn't never said it you know well, it, so that's exactly the thing it, yeah. <laughs> like i remember because i think about that now and i'm just like well dan like i'm gonna you know, not that this is like a nihilistic why bother you you lose either way, but just like there's there's like this level that I want to provide and give my kid. And I think this is the thing that I'm I'm sure it sounds like you, you have a strong grip on this now to where it's like, well, but at the end of the day, like you're still you and you are responsible for your own choices and decisions, but you are influenced and impacted by all these things. And so yeah. you can have a spirit of gratitude or you can you know you know whine and complain about it all 
and basically use that as a way to prevent you from confronting any of it. Because mm-hmm. I mean, I I have siblings or friends and even myself at points where I was like, I'm going to lean on this because then I never have to confront it. And mm-hmm. then it's technically never my fault because yeah. I just, you know, I don't even know how the hell we got so deep on this shit. I'm not even going to lie. Yeah, we were talking about my schedule. and <laughs> yeah, we were then we talking got, about your schedule. We, we just went completely off the deep end Yeah, of we were like supposed to be talking about some jeans and watches, but uh, <laughs> welcome to the show. <laughs> but yeah, but that's that's really powerful. And I yeah. think that's great that you're also able to, you know, to give this life to your kids. And meanwhile, you're getting fits off at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, a lot of therapy has gotten me to the point where I'm at today, and yep. and and uh, understanding and looking back and <clears throat> um, being able to to understand what I was feeling in the moment mm-hmm. and um, have empathy on what my parents were going through and and I think that a lot of it is like once you become a parent, you realize how difficult it is, and you realize like it is impossible to be a perfect father and to be a perfect mother. And you look back on, um, you get way more empathy for your parents, yeah, right? You, you, you yeah, look I back on bad. the life situation. Like it's so much, like I can be a much better father than my father was, yeah. but also like my situation is way different. Yeah. Like he lived on a pastor's, like a missionary salary his entire life. He, um, came to a country where it, it wasn't his first, second, third language to speak you right, know? right right um he he was dealing with so many other different life factors that i don't have to deal with and part of it was um to to set me up to have the sort of life that i do that's like the classic immigrant story right yeah you the parents move over and have um go through all this hardship and open a restaurant or a laundromat or a convenience store or a gas station or whatever to try and make it um in hopes that their kids don't have to do the same thing so that they can be doctors, lawyers, engineers, what have you. And so you chose the entrepreneur so life. I chose. Which I is chose, also, I would say, is risky and as challenging as anything that's yeah. somewhat uninsurable. I, I, uh, <laughs> I was always surprised when I went to my parents and said, this is what I'm going to do with my life, that they were very supportive. Oh. And, and um, I, I, don't, I, I didn't expect that from them. Yeah. Um, and even like some other family members, um, when, because like, y- you also think, imagine like coming from an Asian person's background, what they think of when they think of the clothing industry, it's more like very non-glamorous manufacturing side of things, maybe, maybe like a fabric supplier sort okay. of thing. But like, you know, like it is, it is a line of work that a lot Ralph of Asian Lauren, people, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, and you're also like trying to describe and explain these things to them in <laughs> Chinese or, you know? Oh, so, shit. Yeah. Okay. So in another language, which is not not um, something that I have a very good handle on anymore. So um, oh, so, so my parents um, had uh, were very supportive, um, had um, a good tr- – they tried to have a good understanding of what I was trying to do early on. And I think um, – I think having retail stores helped. Physical once, presence. Physical yeah, yeah, presence. Yeah, yeah. Like once they could sort of go in. Did your dad get, ever get to come into one of your stores? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, Hell yeah. There's like a couple of really cute pictures where they were on a trip to New York and they came 
and they um, would text me pictures of like going and visiting Self Edge and taking picture with like Thomas, Jeans. Thomas, our our manager at the oh. time, who's like this like six foot two tatted up guy, and um, it's really cute. Um, so they, yeah, they 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 were always very supportive. That's great. Um, and my dad would like wear the clothes, and I would like buy him sunsurf shirts from Self Edge and stuff. So. Um, so yeah, they they um they've been really supportive about it even though it was probably not their first choice of occupation for me. Yeah. Well, the jump like backward and forward simultaneously here yeah. like what pushed you into clothes if you are So it sounds like you, you live this life, yeah. you're kind of on the road, things appear very transient and where do clothes enter the picture? Um <clears throat> I think um, from a young age, clothes, I would say from about junior high and on, clothes became very important to me as a way for me to differentiate myself and clothe myself in uh, in the same uniqueness that I thought of myself in my head. Okay, so what, what were sense? you wearing? So this is 13-year-old so, Johan? Because I was so used to being the... the you the youngest? I'm the youngest, yeah. yeah. Okay. But like going back to like being one of the few Asians, I was so used to being different than everybody else that oh. I liked dressing myself in a way that was different and not so different like not off the wall because i was still trying to be a popular kid you know i was still trying to be cool Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i was still trying to have friends and and get with girls and stuff like that (laughs) um so one funny story is like in junior high um i loved the color orange yeah so orange became my safety orange safety orange so i would i had like an orange polar fleece oh nice like half zip i had like orange nylon not all together obviously okay um but, you want to look uh, like the Nickelodeon logo? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't want to look like a, a walking pumpkin. Yeah, but orange became my color. Mm-hmm. And um, junior high friends can correct me on this if I'm wrong. But my uh, recollection of the scenario was like people would have to ask me if they could wear orange. Oh damn! You own the color. <laughs> it Gangster. just became like so my thing. <laughs> That um, this guy's trying to be, be like, a Johan over why, here. Um, why is that dude wearing? Why is that other guy wearing orange today? And I'm like, oh, it's fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> uh, it became like such a thing. So that was like, eh, that's so stupid to talk about now. I'm, I'm no um, man. But, Ride but the so, wave. So so. Do you even loop wheel, bro? Do you know what loop wheel garments are? I actually didn't. Honestly, I was just like, oh, it's a it's a flex. It's a special kind of cotton. Yeah, kind of. But the folks at Standard and Strange dropped a ton of knowledge bombs and their own incredible loop wheel tee. Made in Japan, of course. But back to loop wheel. It's an antique circular knitting machine that relies on gravity and uses spring bearded needles. Do you get it? Bearded needles? What the heck? Look, all you need to know is it's dope. It's better. And if you want to learn more, visit standardandstrange.com forward slash loop wheel and check out their new loop wheel tees. Trust me. Your boy is partial to yellow because, you know, duh. But the tees are fire no matter what color you pick. The fit is spot on and it's a classic tee that looks like it's from every era ever and fits like a dream. And it's from the folks from Standard and Strange. 
the shop that helps you own fewer, better things. Run by industry vets who are focused on incredible product from incredible vendors. And look, if that's not your vibe, check out some of their huge offerings of other Japanese denim or boots. But listen, the shirts, fam, the shirts, the loop wheel. So visit standardandstrange.com forward slash loop wheel to learn more. Standard and Strange, own fewer, better things at standardandstrange.com. There was, I remember that story. And then in, um, in high school, um, we started driving into San Francisco. So uh, right before high school, I was kind of getting into a little bit of trouble and my parents. Define trouble. Um, I started drinking and smoking at a fairly young age. Oh, nice. Okay. I started like messing with girls at a fair, fairly young age. What's and, the young age? Like 13 ish. Like, okay. Was, so it's not like, like grade, super uncommon, but it's enough grade, that you're grade. like, eh. And, but like also consider it from like a very conservative Chinese Christian oh, home. Yeah. My parents were just like, we got to get them out of here. Oh. They had been commuting to San Francisco for a long time, and that's an hour commute each way. Wow. Every day. Crossing the Golden Gate Bridge, into, into the sunset, working, driving home. And um, so I was like a latchkey kid, you know? Mm-hmm, I, had, mm-hmm. I had my school life. I, that's I the after-school programs. After school. I, I, had, I was my own after-school program. I would get my homework done. I would go hang out with my friends. I would like make my own snack. I get would, an orange hoodie. Hit yeah. the road. <laughs> yeah. All while wearing some, <laughs> some sort of orange. Um, so we moved to Millbrae for high school. Okay. Millbrae is, the high school there is like 50% Asian. Okay. So it was a huge culture shock for me. The first dude that I met was a kid that had just moved from Hong Kong and he had a very like fobby accent. Do you know what a fobby, you know what being a fob is? Being a fob, fob means fresh off the boat. It's like an Asian term for like, okay. there's like, Asian, so I can't Asian. use that phrase. I don't know. I don't think it's super derogatory, <laughs> but maybe it is. Probably but, is. <laughs> um, so like there's, there's like Asian Americans who grew up in America and yeah, like yeah, are yeah. kind of whitewashed like I was, or there's fobs, which are kids that, are from China or Hong Kong or Singapore or Korea or wherever. Okay. And so this kid um, was the first dude that I met and was really nice, but had an accent and talked just like my dad. You know, a oh. classic like Cantonese, Canto English. Yeah. Cause, accent. and was he, did you guys speak Cantonese? We spoke English, but I was like, oh my God, everybody at the school is going to be just like my parents, you know, just like, oh, wow. so, so I had a really hard time going to high school at the beginning of high school because what I was comfortable with was hanging out with all the white kids, but naturally the school is very segregated as high schools are and all the Asian kids all hung out together and, stuff, and yeah. all the non-Asian kids hung out together basically. Um, so it was, high school was a bit of a trying time early on for me. We found our group of friends. There was about 20 of us very close still to this day. Oh, wow. 20 years later. We're, we're, we're all getting together in a month. Are you serious? With all of our kids and everything in Southern California. Um, me and my guy group of friends, we're st- we still chat every single day, all day, every day. Um, Whoa. So anyways, clothing-wise, yeah. um, we would drive into Haight Street, Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco. Hell yeah. And um, I would shop at True. Um, and 
Can you explain true is for folks? Yes, who know? Yeah. true is um, as far as I know, one of the first independent streetwear stores. Um, they carried a bunch of independent brands when this was not a thing. This was not a common thing. Yeah. You know, there was, I mean, it's a legendary, yeah. I think a, ve- a very underappreciated, still not even discussed. That yeah. Much. Yeah. It was huge for me. Yeah. Um, and introduced me to a bunch of brands that, um, that I had never heard about before. And for me, like, you know, like think about when you were in high school and you were like getting into clothing or you were trying to buy clothes for yourself, you would go to the mall. Mm-hmm. But everybody went to the mall. And so everybody was buying from um, Structure and Abercrombie, Structure, Abercrombie, yeah. M- Miller's Outpost. Oh my God, Miller's Outpost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Aeropostale. Oh, damn. Okay. All, all Express. Oh, yeah. Ex- Structure became Express for Men or something. Yeah. Like all of those stores, right? Gap. Eunice, where are you at? Bring back Structure. Let's go. <laughs> so all of those. <laughs> Um, so going back to like what I thought of myself and how I wanted to dress now is like, okay, I have access to these brands that are gonna, that are different, that, uh-huh. that other kids are not wearing. Yeah. And I can, um, I can differentiate myself or feel unique, um, when I'm not anymore. Oh, so this is an interest. This is kind of an inverse versus I would say some other folks you would dress to be to fit in yeah like so another funny story is the first day the first day of orientation i got to this high school and everybody was wearing white k-swiss and i was wearing like adidas runners or something like that or something like that i forget exactly and um i was like mom we have to go get some white k-swiss i am gonna this is this is social suicide if i don't get what year was this because i think I. this was 1999 oh yeah this this there was a k-swiss like epidemic my older brother had k-swiss you had to have a pair of white k-swiss the leather yeah Yeah. with the 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 metal uh like little d-ring island things Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah and then people would like swap out the laces for some color for mm-hmm. a little pop. We, I mean, Bay Area, Bay Area, especially Peninsula, like fashion was probably pretty unique, but we like rolled, um, rolled socks and stuffed them under the tongues to get the tongue of the sneakers to puff out a little bit. Oh, that's cool. Um, there was also at our high school, there was an interesting um, style that was pretty pervasive that amongst the Asians was like this like Asian triad gangster sort of style. Go on. (laughs) (laughs) Which is, um, which is like Asian mob. Like, is this like, and I don't mean this derogatory because this is one of my favorite films, even though I recognize it. Like, like big, like big trouble in little China, like the San Francisco Chinatown, like gang that's in there. So that's before that's earlier. This is more like kind of preppy. Kind of, um, like all black. Oh, blacks, black slacks, black dress shoes or boots, black sweater, black overcoat. Um, a lot of Banana Republic, mm. a lot of Dawson pants structure. Um, yeah. So the so the upperclassmen at that time, the cool Asian upperclassmen. That's the way that they were dressing. Buzzed sides, long bangs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember bleached, that. Bleached. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so um, that was like completely foreign to me. You know, I was like, what are these people doing? And so I would try to emulate the upperclassmen and our group of friends would. One of, one of my good friends, he, his brother was a senior at the time. And so he obviously was trying to emulate his brother. And so we all sort of like took that on. Um, and then sort of evolved from that. But that was, yeah, that was a very, uh, I think, very localized sort of style thing that was going on around that time. Yeah. Wow. So as you evolve further, you get through school, you get yeah. through, did you go to, did you go to school after school? I went to USC. Oh shit. So the summer before I started college. You couldn't have been that crazy if you finished school and you go to USC. They no, don't let I, any clown in there. I, I, um, and I'm not belittling your experience no, by the way, but yeah. No, I, I wasn't getting in, I wasn't, I, I always knew how to toe the line. Oh. So in, in junior high, um, all the teachers called a conference with my mom and me, all of my teachers from, because in junior high, you go through your like periods or mm-hmm. whatever, you know? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. like my English teacher, my math teacher, they all got together to gang up on me and they're like, <laughs> you know how to get up to the line and then stop so that you don't get suspended or you don't get Oh, so you're a constant annoyance, but, but you're not but breaking it. <laughs> everybody else fall, but other people follow you, and then they don't know where to stop, and then they're the ones that get in trouble. And so, like, there was—I mean, there was—it was a lot of stuff like that. It wasn't ever—I didn't like get in much trouble with the police. It wasn't like ever Whoa. that, but it was just like a lot of smaller things like that to where, and it and it. <laughs> Jeez, <laughs> and it it, uh, it didn't prevent me from doing really well in school and then getting into a good school. Yeah, you know? well, congratulations. But I also like <laughs> I always like I like gaming the system kind of. So like in high school, I didn't read a single book. Uh, I, I never read. No. I never read a full book. I read the Cliff's Notes. Yeah. I read the whatever. To so you I missed just, out on I just read enough to get. I, my wife always makes fun of me because like. Every every New Year's, I'm like, I'm going to go back and read the classics. And I set this as like a resolution for myself. And then I never do it. Oh, dude, you got to do it. I, I, I To be honest, I did this may, a little less than 10 years ago. Yeah. My cousin, who might even be listening to this, may, I was like, because I, I never finished college. And I was like, yo, what is what are the books that were important to you? John Moy actually has one of the greatest book lists ever. Shout yeah. out to Moy. Yeah. And I was like, what are these books that changed your life? Yeah. Like, tell me these books. And he sent me 20, 30 books. Yeah. Moy sent me books. And I read all of them. It took a long time. Yeah. But, you know, it's stuff like Mark Twain yeah. and Jack London mm. and, you know, all these, like, kind of classic authors. Is, like, Kurt, Kurt Vonnegut on there? Yeah, Vonnegut. Yeah, I read Slaughterhouse-Five. Yeah. I, you know, The Trial yeah. from Adorans. I, yeah. I mean, and it's, I think, and this is one thing, because one of my friends I had asked about this, he's like, oh, Re, he's like, I reread these lists a lot because when I was younger and in high school, he's like, I didn't care. I just wanted to finish. Yeah. He's like, and now that I have the luxury to spend more mm. time in some of these classics, yeah. he's like, I am, am able to appreciate them far more. Yeah. So I say this yeah. to defend you in the sense that like, I think you could probably read these now if you want, yeah. if you have time and you're ton of your free time <laughs> yeah. that yeah. you can All the dive, free time that I have you can dive into Dickens, man, and yeah. really lose oh, your yeah. shit. Yeah. Yeah. Or not. <laughs> so I, No, I I want to. I mean, like I make the resolution because I want to. I see it as a good thing. I just mm-hmm. It's um, the thought that counts. It, it is. It is. 
so yeah, I was I was good at gaming the system. I was good at um, and you, but you got into USC. Charming teachers, and I'm a, I'm a good test taker. Okay, so that helped. I got into USC. We start Andrew started 316 the summer before I went to college. Okay, and we met each other because we were groomsmen in my sister's wedding. He was really good friends with my now brother-in-law. They went to University of Chicago together. Yeah, which is also I always forget that because that's a juggernaut school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and <laughs> shout out Moy, um, he went there too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so we uh, became fast friends because I was wearing something alphanumeric, maybe or something. Um, and I was still in high school at the time, and he uh, was like, "How do you know that brand? Like, where did you get that shirt?" And so we got to talking. And we were into similar things. So when he wanted to start three sixteen, he uh, AIM messaged me. <laughs> this is really dating. What the was whole your thing. screen name? I don't want to talk about it. Come on! It was um, it was a little too short with the two. Oh, mine was Vitamin J twenty six, which is still my eBay screen. Is name. it? Oh, yeah. nice. <laughs> <laughs> I got I got banned from eBay, so I have to use my wife's account. Oh, damn! That's we can talk about that later. Um, <laughs> um, so so we started. So up. he started the company. Um. The summer of 2003 with another partner. And I was like, hey, I'm on the West Coast. I'm between the Bay Area and LA all the time. I will do what I can to help out. Like, I think this is cool. Um, I'm in school. I don't need money. And this I'm is gonna... when 316 was doing like streetwear. This is like Cousins graphic, era. Graphic t-shirts, even before Cousins. Graphic t-shirts. Um, you know, just like, this is what you make when you have no idea what you're doing. Is you How to do, make it in America stuff. Is you're yeah. doing No, even before that. Like, how to, I think how to make it in America is like, once we started making jeans and, and started making clothing, like that is, it's a, it's hyper sensationalized, of course, for HBO, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was a pretty good Yeah, we're referring to the television show, not of, literally. Yeah, of what we were doing at the time. And when he flips open the book to say, these are the jeans that I want to make, that photo is a photo that they pulled off the 316 website. That's right. Yeah, because this was on Tumblr for a while. That yeah. was like a very big Tumblr post of it. Yeah, he like flips You're... open his notebook and he's like, "I want to make these jeans." And the photo in that notebook is a pair of three sixteen jeans, like Damn. a dude wearing a pair of three sixteen. That's jeans. right. That's yeah. right. Okay, sorry. So you you pitch yourself to Andrew. You're saying like, "Yo, we got this. I'm I'll I'll be the West Coast dude." Yeah, and I was just interning. I was going to I was going to like hip hop concerts and selling T shirts. I was like trying to promote on campus and like. Um, I also in college started working and, and buying at a streetwear boutique called El Mercado. Um, and we carried 316 there. Um, and then, um, Andrew was working a full-time job at that time while he was doing 316. I always felt very guilty about going to USC because it was private school and very expensive. when I could have gone to like a UC, a public school, that would have been much cheaper. So I just finished school as quickly as I could, got out early, graduated, and um, Andrew offered me a position and to become a partner of 316, and I started doing it full time. Damn. So go Trojans yeah. to 316. Yes. That's that's great. I thought you had another gig. I didn't know you. it was... A dead serious. I I didn't know you. Yeah, for the first were... couple of years, I was buying for that boutique. Yeah, um, it was a pretty small boutique. Um, but um, 
Caleb from who owns Good Fight now. Yeah. Also, yeah. I hired him to work at that boutique. Also, he worked there. Um, and was one of the first interns at 316. Um, so we had a good thing going. We had a really good thing going. And I still keep in touch with um with the owner of El Mercado. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the thing that like, cause I think 316, and I, I've said this because I've been friends with both you guys for a while, but known Andrew for a long ass time. Yeah. Like you guys have always been a brand. And I remember this. I went to this marketing conference at FIT mm-hmm. and the guy had like founded all these other brands. This was like some, you know, rich dude, like Harvard business review guy. Yeah. And he starts doing this presentation and he started talking about brands that have staying power and brands that are focused. Mm. And one of the brands he mentions was 316. And I remember I texted, Andrew knows about this. If he's listening, he'll be like, oh yeah, I remember this. And he was like, this is a brand because he, he talked about a lot of brands will, um, I, don't, I don't know if I want to, I want to make sure I use the right words here, will, will compromise their original products and evolve to meet the, the ever-changing trends. Mm. And he was like, you want to be a brand like 316 where like they, he's like, they just make jeans and they make the same jeans and they'll, he's like, they're not adding a ton of new products. They're not adding you know, these massive, he's like, it's a very easy to understand brand. He's like, and it's very focused. Mm. And he's like, because of that, he's like, I don't think they're ever going to go anywhere. He's like, in a good way. Like yeah, he was yeah, just yeah. like, there's, cause he used right. examples of like, there was this brand and then they shifted to this and then they lost who they were. And then this brand shifted. And he's like, and this brand never. And I was like, holy shit. And still to this day, I think it's one of the, the most admirable, you know, and 316 has evolved. But even on your site, still, and I'll quote it back to you, you guys are like, we're a denim company. We yeah. make jeans. Yeah. And, and I think especially when you make a product that is so evergreen, I mean, that's a tacky term, but like yeah. you always need jeans. Jeans are basically as American as baseball and football. I yeah. mean, it's just, and there's, there's so much like focus and staying power on that. And I think it's really, really beautiful. And you've also, in the best possible way, <laughs> avoided all of the like scary hype things yeah so like when you think about you know like rob garcia von noir um who i remember he blew up when kanye was wearing his stuff mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and rob garcia is great designer this is no shots or anything to him i amazing dude yeah there was like when a brand gets like kanye or a brand gets hyped super quick yeah there's a forced growth that happens and there's always going to be naysayers to hype yeah. And so sometimes it's a bit of a death rattle. It is. And it's it's a thing that you guys in the best possible way have like avoided and you've just been this kind of like it's sometimes if you know you know, it's mainstream to the people like and it's it's really really beautiful. So I say this to like gas you up and congratulate you guys on this because it's <laughs> well, painfully that. difficult especially when you got some guy using you in like a fucking Harvard Business Review thing. I mean, yeah. it was crazy. Well, I I look back and sometimes, you know, sometimes you wish you have that, like, that skyrocket growth moment. And we've never had that. We've never, like, had that moment where we blew up. Mm-hmm. A, a, a moment in time that we can point back to where we're like, yeah, we blew up. It's been, over the past 20 years, plodding, steady, consistent, upwards trajectory growth. 
And that helped us so many times over the, over the lifespan of this company. When we were transitioning out of graphic t-shirts into menswear at the time, mm-hmm. um, it was because we weren't as big as the other streetwear brands that we weren't pigeonholed into that. If we were as big as some of the other streetwear brands that we that were peers of ours, where we were all like we were all showing at the High Five Campground, like the same sort of trade shows back in two thousand five, two thousand six. If we got as big as those brands, there was no way that we could have uh, shifted the direction of the company in the way that we wanted to. Mm. And we weren't at the time in like two thousand seven or so. We weren't like, let's change this company. We were like, hey, let's start making clothing. I think it's time for us to evolve as a company. Let's start making clothing. And then the clothing that we came up with, that we designed, that we wanted to wear ourselves, didn't fit in with the types of stores that we were selling to at the time. It was A, too expensive, too a, what did I say? A? A, A takes us to B. And D. <laughs> D <yeah>. X, um, <laughs> B, not branded, not like not graphic heavy enough. Yeah. So like imagine some of these streetwear brands, once they start doing cut and sew, it still has to be very heavily branded or still graphics based. Yeah, yeah. And what yeah. we were doing was none of that. It was very simple. It was not branded. We were trying to make, at that time, what people were calling contemporary menswear. So who made the decision to not go with I think else. both of us you know like over the years Andrew and my uh taste and interest in things has been very aligned and so we naturally like that's what we wanted to make that's what we thought was good um and so we would make this collection and we couldn't at also at the time like that wave of streetwear was having a really hard time mm-hmm. um a lot of stores grew way too quickly and were shutting down um, a lot of brands were trying to figure out how to balance these independent retailers with selling to Zoomies and PacSun and um, what's on the East Coast like Doc- Doctor J's or something mm-hmm. like these, yeah, yeah, these yeah, yeah. stores like that. Like that was the next level of growth. Um, they had to start to sell to these multi-door mall retailers in order to continue growing because the independent stores weren't enough. But when they did that, then the 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 exclusiveness, the 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 uniqueness of the product wasn't there anymore, and so that first wave, um, it wasn't the first wave, but that wave of streetwear started crashing. Yeah, and at the same time, we we came out with this, what was considered like contemporary men's collection, and so we had to find different stores to sell it to, and because we never had that huge meteor meteoric rise as a streetwear brand we were able to sell it to a store like blackbird um in, in Ballard, Seattle, in Ballard, which yeah. was like a hugely influential and like i still look back on that trip that i took with Shar up there to show them the collection that was like such a mind-blowing win for us that we could get our brand into a store like that mm. um why do you think they took you in I mean, going back to the conversation, partially because we never blew up as a streetwear brand, but like we, um, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, I, I we think, got lucky. Yeah. Well, no, I, I will push back on that. I don't think brands that are trying to like stores that are trying to make money, it's not so much like, well, we got lucky with that brand. I mean, there's a certain 
characteristic trait and quality that needs to be there. And I think this is the thing. It's like 316 has been a brand that's always been, if you know, you know. And again, I say this in a, the most loving way. Mm-hmm. And, and so you don't have like, it's also a brand that doesn't scream the brand, right? Mm. So even if you don't like the brand, <laughs> you can wear it and it doesn't matter. And like, that's a thing that I don't think I, I understood until way later in my sartorial journey, for lack of a better term, of like, okay, I, there are brands out there that I'm like, yo, their logo's corny or their brand book is lame, but there's a piece there, something like that, that I might like and fit in. Mm-hmm. And you know, a brand is big and successful when people that don't care about clothes buy the brand. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. where it's like people that are just buying it because it's there and they got it on, you know, because like, that's a thing that everyone forgets about when people will try to shit on a brand like, I don't know, um, some like huge, I don't know, like, okay, well, Untuck It, right? There's okay. Untuck It people that listen to this podcast and everyone loves to dunk on Untuck It. Yeah. But Untuck It doesn't care because they make like a quarter of a billion dollars selling shirts to dudes who just need the shirt. Yeah. And I think that's that's its own world. And like 316 has this ability to kind of like toe the line, like you were saying, uh, on all of these things. Mm. Cause there's a friend of mine, his dad wears 316 mm-hmm. and he's like, Oh yeah, my dad wears those jeans. And I'm like, wait, that <laughs> I'm like, well, your dad's kind of cool. I guess yeah. I'm closer to his age, you know, but like, it's, cause it just fits yeah. and it, it's not loud enough. It's not in all those ways. Yeah. So it's like, was that always intentional to not be loud on logos and on, you know, I think we always, like, I really value consistency. I really value, like, I, 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 I'm not a trend chaser. Um, and so, like, I think a lot of people aim for what they call timeless design. They, that's something that a lot of brands and companies strive for. But, like, you can say that, and there, there aren't a lot of repercussions if you're wrong. If you say like we're trying to create timeless design, <laughs> that's, and, that's you know a good point. you have to you have to be there five years later to call them out and be like you know how you said this five years ago. Well, you're wrong. It it, it didn't end up being timeless. Nobody wears this stuff anymore because fashion's changed or for a myriad of reasons. Fair. So for um for people to continue um wearing stuff that we made 10 15 years ago for it to hold up first quality wise mm-hmm. but also for it to still be relevant in some ways and things come and go and it's there things are cyclical but for people like our um our photographer who's one of our photographers who shot with us like for 15 years now just unearthed a pea coat like a double-breasted canvas jacket that he found in his closet from spring of either 07 or 08 and has been wearing it for the past couple of months. And he's like, this thing is amazing. And I get compliments on it everywhere. And so like for that thing to um, not have dissolved from being poor quality, Mm. um, but also be um, something that someone in 2023 would still want to wear, then like, okay, in some instances we, we did, create timeless design when we that's what we set out to do and um that's not to say that we did it like there are i'm sure there are pieces in that collection that i would never want to see the light of day okay yeah um but in in some instances we um we achieved what we set out to 
do you think you wouldn't have been able to do that if you weren't making such like classic products? I always think that it would be difficult to launch a brand <laughs> at any at any stage, but especially now like you have to catch lightning in a bottle. It, it and usually it feels like the things that pop now are not the sort of quiet, steady, timeless design type things. Mm-hmm. They're like the loud um branded um on trend type things. Mm-hmm. Um but I certainly think it's possible. I mean, brands did it before us. There's, uh, you know, of course, yeah. the brands and, and, um, we never, we could never fathom that we could liken ourselves to some of these heritage brands. But I think in many ways, those are the brands that we admire, like family brands that make certain styles for a really long time that are known for a certain level of quality. Mm-hmm. that are very consistent as brands and there are like workwear companies like this there are um heritage you know fashion companies eyewear companies footwear companies that are like this and i imagine that there will always be a place in the market for designers that really care about quality mm. it will rise to the top and i think that um it is one north star that has guided us over all these years is we really care about the quality of the product that we're making i want to add an additional layer to this do you think that people a designer now or someone would be content enough at the slow and steady growth because from my interactions with younger designers, people that are starting out, they want, they have a five-year plan before the first product is made and they want to be a $20 million company by five years. Mm -hmm. And because of how we have communicated what success looks like to a brand publicly, Mm -hmm. just the, the, the world, they're like, I'm not successful unless I've been, unless I'm a $20 million company Mm -hmm. in five years. Mm -hmm. I'm sure those people are out there. Yeah. There, it, the, it you have to have it's like the alchemy of, of of all of it right like andrew and i never took vc money that makes a huge difference we never took on investors so we don't have to answer to anybody we don't have to we can grow at the pace that we want to grow at yeah, you don't only, need an 800 percent growth in one year yeah we're not yeah. we don't we're not trying to provide a return on somebody's investment we only care about making really good products so that we could give all of our employees a raise every year, continue paying their healthcare, maybe hire more people as we continue to grow if needed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm sure someone, there are people that are, that are out there like that. Um, it does seem like that's going to be a fewer and further between sort of setup for a brand um, as um and i don't i don't like making like these like wide sweeping generalizations of what young people are like nowadays and of like of course you know so i mean there's media context culture. within this yeah. whole so i'm sure I, yeah. I yes i believe that there are people out there that can do what we did right um it 
is not going to be easy, but it wasn't easy when we did it. And it wasn't easy when the companies before us did it. What made you content? Um, Because I think, again, it's it's a focused brand. mm -hmm. Even now, right? As you guys have gotten into other levels of production in larger collections, it's still not that big of a collection. And that's not, that's not a detractor. That's, I think that's, it's focused. And I think now most people are like, no, 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 it needs to be bigger. Yeah. And you need to have all these other collections. You need to have this and you need to have this. And and it's like, but why would they say that? Because they want to make, they want to make more money. So I think that the two factors and maybe Andrew would answer this differently is one, we're not greedy people. And so we don't feel like we have to make more stuff so that we can make more money. Mm-hmm. And two, did I do A and A and two again, or am I? What? I I'm not and even the paying second attention point. To that part. <laughs> the yeah. second point is that <laughs> maybe that's we, the ongoing gag. <laughs> we yeah, we care so much about doing things at a certain level that that we can go to sleep at night and have peace with ourselves at that. If we made too big of a collection, we would not be able to execute on every single one of those pieces at the level that we would want to. Have you ever gotten jealous of brands that were started way later than you did something similar to you were very aggro about it. And now they're so big that they kind of ethered themselves. No, because I've seen all of those, not all. I've seen so many of those brands crash. Yeah. I mean, there are brands that I'm thinking of now, and this no hate, but like they started with one specific attitude. They got bigger, 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 bigger. And now, like, I see people that wearing them, and I'm like, hmm. Like, it, it's, I think that's, that's the hardest part. And I say this especially as just an American that's, constantly influenced by like more is better more is better bigger better to to be that content that you guys do to where it's like okay you didn't have a i'm making this up i don't know you didn't have 300 percent growth was it a good year yeah you know yeah this i mean this goes back to like what i was talking about uh, about our slow steady upwards trajectory over the past 20 years i think i honestly think i would get scared if all of a sudden things go crazy. Yeah, of course. I mean, that's what I would we get nervous. About. Yeah. I would, I think I would, I would then start to um, try to fight that. I would mm. try to fight that growth because over these 20 years, over these past 20 years, I have seen that that meteoric rise almost always means a crash afterwards. Well, yeah, because also what's, Nothing is more fun to hate on something big. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not, uh, Guillermo Andrade said this where he's like, you know, you want to hate the Death Star. Like, I'm yeah, misquoting yeah, yeah. him, but he was yeah. just like, right. everyone w- loves to hate the Death Star. Yeah. Right. Like, you know, it's like hating LVMH brands or right. any of that stuff. Right. You know, they're like too big to fail. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, and I think like that, that's just, and I mean, I don't mean to stay focused on this so long, but I, I think it's just so uncharacteristic. And I, I call it out because I think many of us are unconsciously brainwashed by what does, I'm air quoting this word now, success mean Mm. for a clothing brand. Yeah. And it's like, there's a lot of beauty in 
just continuing to exist. I think this is one of the things why a lot of people love Japanese clothing brands. Mm-hmm. Um, like specifically like brands from Japan, like Takahiro Miyashita talk about the soloist where it's like, you know, he doesn't want, you don't want 300% growth. You just, you know, just a little bit more. Um, Hiroshi Fujiwara talks about this where it's like, I just want to make enough to keep going. Yeah. And you're like, ah, but you have a lot of Rolexes. You have a lot, like, wait, what do you mean? You know, so it's like, I I just, I, I want, I say this as I want to have that mentality Mm. uh, in everything I do. Yeah. And I think that, because that can be applied, not just in a profession, but in life in general. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, contentedness. I, I mean, that's, that's, part of that is the work that, Andrew and I do on ourselves individually through um, therapy, through just working things out, through getting older and maturing, mm. and um, and yeah, I think there. Going back to your question, I mean, certainly there are times when another brand comes out and just jumps to the front of the line, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's okay. You know, that's great for them. And that's, and I don't, I honestly don't know if I would want that for us. Yeah. And I think, so as I talk this out, maybe, um, maybe some of the decisions that we've made over the years have been because of my fear of that. Okay. So I'm naturally fighting against the blow up moment and doing things so that we don't chase that moment that a lot of people chase after yeah yeah that's interesting not a not a self-sabotage not a self-sabotage but like i like to tell people because i think it's really important we have never made a decision a manufacturing decision about our products to make them cheaper every decision like like i work on core products right my my main day-to-day a responsibility are, within yeah. 316 is to manufacture design and manufacture the core collection um, of 316, which is jeans, t-shirts, all the fleece products. What are the fleece products? What do you mean? Zip, like zip hoodies. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Um, crew neck sweatshirts. Um, we do French cherry, like PFD, mm-hmm. garment dyed stuff. Yeah, yeah. Pima t-shirts, those sorts of things. And going back to that sort of Japanese mentality, I love the ability to tweak, tweak, tweak over many years to try and get this product to as close to whatever. I mean, there's no perfect pair of jeans, but to constantly improve this product. Right. And um, where I had trouble was when I needed to work on with Andrew the seasonal stuff because that temporality is difficult for me to get inspired about. And so Wesley and Andrew, I really appreciate them taking that on and doing such a good job with the seasonal collection mm-hmm. because it I I just it's very difficult for me to design that way. Why is that? Um I don't think I'm as prolific with my ideas because like think about the, think about the way that a normal fashion brand needs to work or like a fashion boutique. Mm -hmm. 
you're designing a collection, a seasonal collection over a year in advance. So if you're a buyer, you have to be roughly 50% correct about everything that you buy a year in advance, right? For sell-through is what you're referring to, yeah. As a designer, the numbers may be a little bit different, but you have to be right about projecting on this thing that's going to come out a year later and uh, hope that the idea is still relevant um, for your entire collection over and over and over again. Mm. And like sometimes those products that you worked on so far in advance, they're like here and gone and they sell out in a week, which is great. Everybody wants that, right? Yeah, yeah. But then it's like, we worked on this all this time and then it's here and gone. It just feels so fleeting to me. Okay. I, I, I'll bite. I, I think that that makes perfect sense, but I think, and I'm not, I'm not arguing, but I yeah. think some of this stuff, you guys also make similar, like this, the same thing, like the, um, not the jeans, but the, uh, the cross cut. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, but like <clears throat> you'll change the flannel. Yeah. And that's great. Yeah. And because for me, and I think this is a big thing that I've told other people too. I did like a speaking thing where people are like, oh, what's an important thing a brand should do? It's like, don't change your effing sizes. Yeah. Like a large fits like the large of last year and the year before that and two or five years mm-hmm. ago. Mm-hmm. And, but so you guys still have, you have models that it feels like have been very, you've been true to. Yeah. Even in the seasonal collection, there are themes that have run throughout. Yeah. There's like that, the, that crosscut flannel first came out in, 2008 i think with that, and it's, that design I mean, it's a banger yeah. yeah and there there have been like the stadium jacket we ran for many many years which is like a waxed canvas bomber style mm-hmm. varsity kind mm-hmm. of jacket that we ran for many many years um and so even yes even within the seasonal collection there are through lines for sure because i mean i i speak of it as this sort of dichotomy, but it's not like we're going to all of a sudden do like just everything on trend for our seasonal collection. You know, that's just a way for us to, to paint with more colors, you know, to be a little bit more, you know, like some of these short sleeve prints, some of these shirts. Yeah. I mean, there's some, some, some the crazy stuff. stuff there's great there. stuff, but like, like realistically speaking, you can't sell that exact print season in and season out for 10 years. Correct. Like you could with a t-shirt or a jean. Correct. Um, so that's where the sort of the the design mindset differs. Mm, yeah, okay. All right, I agree. And that's, I mean, that is, do you guys, I don't even know this. Like, do you do you have like an archive or are you building or do you create one? Um, we, not officially, not like, like some of the big fashion houses do right. where they have like the big basement with like everything. Um, categorize and stuff. We have been um, trying to an- amass more things, whether it's like hitting up our friends to see if they have like really worn in stuff or good clients of ours from over the years or like just searching grailed and searching like buying back eBay, old stuff. Buying, buying back old stuff. Yeah. That, um, that are really nicely worn in and um, that we want to have record of. Um, so we're, we're slowly building that. Yeah. Because I feel like that's obviously like that's a hindsight thing. I don't think many people, you know, 20 years ago, you weren't thinking, ooh, let's make sure we create an extra dead stock of everything that we do. Yeah. And also, I think 
I say this too, because I, a friend of mine who works for a very, very large fashion brand, they will do new stuff, but then they also try to find other stuff that they'll buy back from employees or people. Because if it's new, that's fine. But like, you don't really get to see if there was an imperfection or the the way a fabric would fade. It's like, it's new, you know, mm. especially with something like jeans or stuff. It's like, well, did it, did it erode at the neck or did it, well, it, ne- it didn't because it was never worn. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. In, it's in a bag. Yeah. <laughs> and I think like there's, there's uh it's, I'm glad that you're also doing it that way. Cause you actually get to see how it was used and yeah utilized and yeah. yeah we all we over the years we've done it with jeans people would bring back in like really thrash pair, pairs of jeans and because we were still selling the new version of that product we would have it in our stores and we would show customers who are maybe new to the raw denim world like this is the way this fabric looks now it's mm-hmm. deep 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 <laughs> indigo almost black and this is the way it looks after you wear it for two years you yours may not look exactly the same as this kids who skated all over lower Manhattan in these pairs of jeans and, yeah, yeah. and was also a bar back at night and like all of these things. But, um, but this is the capability of this sort of fabric and that sort of clicks for them, you know, that yeah. visual representation. Yeah. That makes sense. How have you survived 20 years of telling people how to wash their jeans? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I don't mind it. I don't mind it. I honestly, well, clearly, I still, I you're still, still here. <laughs> I still answer. I still answer almost every day customer emails that go to info at 316.com. You're not even cut and paste in answers here. I still, you should, I still answer my DMS. If, if a legit customer has a sizing question or a product question, I still answer it. I like, I mean, that's crazy. I'm, I'm a simple person. I like consistency. I'm not like I'm not above any of it. And I like from the beginning, like I try to model that for all of our employees. Like I, um, when it was just me and Andrew, we did everything. We packed the boxes. I warehoused the stuff in my garage. I shipped it. Yeah. I drove to the manufacturers. I loaded stuff up in my car. I, if something would go wrong with the production, I was, I was, we were talking about the story this morning, a hundred pairs of jeans came in. All the hems were ugly. They didn't have the calibration right on the bottom stitching. So I de-stitched every single pair of jeans and rehemmed them. Wait, are you serious? Yeah. Damn. Shar was in law school at the time. She just sat in the back room with me and she was studying. And I just went, like, it took me two or three nights, maybe longer. And I just, I de-stitched every single one and rehemmed every single one. Because I just, I couldn't fathom going to market with. Well, and also you're not like, well, let's just destroy these. You're like, right? No, ab- no, absolutely not. That wasn't yeah. even a, a a possibility. Yeah, because I, mean, I think some brands or people would be like, this is a manufacturer's defect. You owe us. You have to redo right, this. You, right, you know, right? There's like this. I don't know. It's kind of absurd, but I mean, yeah, you just made it work. Yeah, that's that's actually really great. Um, do you think? And this is you know, because your production is. Sm- smaller mm-hmm. and, and you guys have more of a view on it like because I, I feel like now that's stuff that brands really want because they're you know this is the thing we were talking about earlier brands will get so big that they lose the oversight of their production yeah for they sure. lose the ability to pay attention to stuff that happens and so it becomes much more difficult to i mean to let's just be honest like to guarantee like 
the quality control of that. Yeah. Because they're they're too big. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, these things are made by humans, right? Human hands are sewing these garments. And if you're only making one garment, mm-hmm. you're going to be able to put more focus into that one garment than if you're making a thousand. That's just natural. That's human nature. Right. If you're making 200 pairs of jeans within a certain timeline versus 5,000 pairs of jeans within that same timeline, there are some corners that need to be cut to get that done, right? So yeah, naturally, um, this has also been a benefit to our company over the years is that because we haven't had that meteoric rise, we are able to keep um, the quality and, and QC everything at a certain level. And that's not to say that we haven't had like production mistakes over and that everything comes out perfect. We still like, we still mess up all the time, but um, we're, um, it, it does make things much easier that the quantities are not, you know, through the roof. Yeah. Cause I mean, there's been times, and I say this as a, a consumer mm-hmm. of your products, mm-hmm. that's like, you, you just don't have it. It's sold out. Yeah. And I and then I can't get it. Yeah. And some companies will flip out because that means that that's technically money that you would have gotten sure. that you can't get yeah. because it's not there. So do you, do you guys just say like hope you're you still want it when it's there? <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I think Andrew doesn't love it as much as I love it. <laughs> okay. Um like Almost consistently since we started making jeans, we have not been able to meet demand. Yeah, I mean, there's always something sold out. There's all, like, we just, it's, it's a long process. We are having this denim woven for us in Japan on very old machines, then boat freighted over. It's got a clear customs. How long does it take to bring it over? Just so folks have an idea. Just, just the weaving of it. Now, with all the manufacturing delays and stuff, it can take like up to a year beyond. Holy shit. For the fabric. A and year? Then it gets I thought put you were going to say three months or something. I you... wish. Three months would be a dream. Three oh months would be God. like fast forwarding life. Put it on a boat. Okay. takes a month from Japan to the port of Los Angeles or Long Beach and then goes a day to go up to our factory in San Francisco. And then like can take up to three months to manufacture the run of jeans once the fabric is landed in San Francisco. That's crazy. Things are messed up. I mean, there are so many uh, logistical issues in the world right now, but yeah. Well, sure. Yeah. And, so I, that's, and I, that's a huge part of it. Yeah. But, okay. Um, but so consistently, we have not been able to meet the demand for our jeans. And I think that's a good thing. I think that's provided us longevity that it's not readily available all the time that, you know, there is, you know, it's, it, it, this is economics 101. There's still some supply and demand. Supply and, it's not, and demand. Exactly. But it's not, <laughs> it's not artificial because yes. we put 10 up on the website and then marked it as sold out. And actually, we have like another 50 ready to go for the restock, you know, uh, like surprise. Yeah, yeah which we have more. many we, brands do. We found more in the warehouse. So like, we yeah. don't do that. Um, it is um, logistically very difficult to manufacture things at a certain level. Yeah. Um, it takes time. 
And so, uh, over all these years, like I, we've never been able to meet demand. And I think that's a good thing. I think that's, you know, I think that's been to the benefit of the company. I mean, yeah, clearly. I mean, I, I will say it's occasionally frustrating as a consumer. Sure. But I think this is the thing that I recognize with jeans specifically. Like, I always need a new pair of jeans. I probably have, I counted this the other day. This is not any sort of flex. I have around 20 to 25 pairs of jeans. <laughs> that might be more than me. <laughs> and and I have different jeans for different times. I have jeans that like, oh, this is a lighter jean that I can right. wear with this. This is a lower rise jean. And I, the other day, because like my wife, I mean, I she's definitely not listening to this because she doesn't care. But she <laughs> she uh, she was like, why do you have so many jeans? Yeah. And I was like, well, actually, I was like, this is a jean that I wear with the sport coat. And it's not like this is the sport coat jean, but there's like, the rise is a little higher. The leg is a little bit, you know, more straight. There's all these nuances. Yeah. And the thing that I'm going to get to is that like after that, I looked at it and I was like, oh man, I think I need about three or four more pairs of jeans. <laughs> and I'm like, that that's still my thing. Because even now, I mean, there's a pair of jeans there mm-hmm. that in my, we're doing this in my hotel room. There's jeans here. I'm wearing jeans. And then I have like two other pairs that I really wanted to pack. Because mm-hmm. I was like, well, I want one that's like a little bit of a fade that's a little bit more of a nuance. For how many days in New York? Four. <laughs> four pairs of jeans for four days in New York. Yeah, and it's funny. You're an like, animal. Because well, people <laughs> like Sid Mashburn, where he's like, you just bring one pair for the whole... And I'm like, get the fuck yeah. out of here. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. You, it's so... But I think that that's great in the sense that even now in my head, I'm like, well, I really want a light wash. I want a white wash. I want a black, a deep black, a, you know? And I think like that's the the... It's and it's still like the easiest thing to get and understand. Yeah. And like that, I mean, and I say this just as a fan where it's like I and then then a new fit comes along. Then you guys may like the CS and I'm like, oh, you know what? I think that does I think I do need that sort of fit. And I oh mm, yeah. Well, you know what's interesting? Like <laughs> o- over the past the raw denim thing has like, you know, pe- other people have talked about this, but like we were making we started making jeans in two thousand eight. I yep. think around 2011 or 12 is like when it hit critical mass, like raw denim. And yeah, like everyone's that, taking pictures on Tumblr. Yeah. yeah. What we were making and what was prevalent and popular in menswear aligned. Mm-hmm. And then, and then the, those paths separated mm-hmm. as people went into like more like sartorial sort of menswear people went into the whole like double monk thing and then people clashed against that and then went into the whole jogger thing. Um, and then people went into like back into streetwear, but now it's luxury streetwear. So like all of this time we sort of continued doing the same thing, you know? I mean, definitely. We made, yeah. We made what we made. We still make the SL 100 X. It's still the same denim that we started with. It's out of stock in, in my size. I checked the other day. Just <laughs> <laughs> I promise you it's not artificial it's really it's a, um we're bad at making things um and and now it's funny because now it's sort of aligning again like over the past couple of it months is. it's sort of sort of aligning again and people are coming back to us and being like yo I was into this 10 years ago 11 years ago I remember so but but the the difference now is fit 
you know, it's, people are still into the raw thing. People, I think, um, the people who are around were around ten years ago have a better understanding. There are tons of new kids that are getting into it where we have to do the same sort of education, like how to like, wash your please jeans. Please don't jump in the ocean. That's disgusting. Please don't put it in your freezer. freezer. That's where God. your ice cream goes. Yeah, and your your frozen peas. Um, yes, it wash your the jeans. Bacteria, man. Yeah. So now the difference is fit. The, everybody wanted wanted super slim in 2012, and now everyone wants wide. Um, and so it's it's interesting to see how like you just and and I imagine this is how things have been like not just for like denim brands but when i think back to like some of the heritage brands like like everybody loves carhartt and dickies right now right but they've been around ben davis been around yep been around forever and so they just keep doing what they're doing slow steady plotting growth resolute in what they are as a company and the trends will come and go maybe you'll maybe maybe you'll have a couple of years of like inflated growth and then you don't, you're not dumb with that extra money that you make and you don't go open a million stores. You don't go get some like crazy high rise office building and fill it with expensive furniture. You don't over hire and you can sustain that when things go back the other way. Mm. I mean, that's, do you guys see yourself getting into more like mentorship? Because I think that is, that's a message that people say that they're doing but they don't really embody it. I mean, there's a gajillion podcasts mm-hmm. that I say that were like, yo, don't spend your money like this. Mm-hmm. But I think no one really, well, not no one, but very few people really live their business out like that. But yeah. I think a lot of it's because VC money just needs 300% return. Exactly, yeah. 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 They, they need that hyper growth. Um, yeah, I'm, oh, I, I try to make myself available as much as possible. I don't have a lot of time to mentor. I Clearly. am there for my kids. I'm there for my employees. Like I love giving my employees financial advice. Oh wow. <laughs> I okay. love helping them figure out index fund. <laughs> yeah. How like, okay, I'm here now. How do I get myself to the place where I can buy a house? I love doing that. That I will walk you through that. I will, you know, hold your hand through that. Um I I don't have a lot of time to mentor people outside of that but i'm open to it maybe when my kids get a little bit older i can do more of that i used to go back to usc and um there's a mentorship program oh that's awesome and i would i would um meet with a student throughout a semester and help them out and help them figure out like their 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 path into whatever career that they were trying to get into oh that's amazing um um, yeah. And then would go back and speak at my high school at times and, and stuff like that. But, um, I don't have as much time for my mentorship is to my sons. No, that's, that's what cool. I'm focused on. That's great. Yeah. Well, Johan, thank you very, very, very much. Long time coming. Thanks. Yeah. For, yeah. I'm this was, I, I'll say this on record. There was a lot of times that I was trying to hit you up Yeah, and I had thought I'm, I'm publicly admitting this. Yeah. I had thought you were the one that was icing me. <laughs> um, and and, it, and a lot of this was me. I'm owning this here. I want, I want to own this here. I, 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 there was wires that were crossed. I'd wanted to do this for a while. And um, I'm, I'm very glad the stars aligned. I, am, I was definitely not icing you. I am very press averse. Yeah. I'm very, um, 
very averse to self-promotion. I just, I'm very uncomfortable with it. I want, like, I care about the people in my life and what they think about me. Mm-hmm. And this is why I'm so bad at Instagram and so bad at social media. And so like Andrew and I were talking about this earlier today. He's much better and has been over the years. Um, He's on, good at pushing on, people on stuff. On, Shout out Andrew. On forum boards. He's much better. And Kia, much better at forum boards than me. Um, I'm, a, I'm an IRL person. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I care about my friends. I care about my family. I care about the people that know me, my employees. I care about what those people think about me. And, and I'm very uncomfortable with any sort of anything that like borders on self-promotion or like self-aggrandizement. So like even, I, we were talking about this at lunch, even posting fit pics. Oh, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Because I came from before, I mean like I'm not that old, but I, half my life was before the internet. And so, like, taking a picture of yourself to show what you're wearing that day is, like, super cringe. And I still hate myself sometimes for doing it. I recognize that it's important and people don't see it that way anymore. And it's good for the company. It's good for self-edge and it's good to promote those things. Um, But I have a very hard time doing it. And I still, like, I got to go down into the shop and hide from my employees and do it. Yeah, you in, said like, you secret. locked the door. I, I closed the, we have this big metal door. The thing about the big metal door though is it is loud as hell. The entire building can hear it. Sounds so they like hear you're me. on taking a fit picture. Yeah, again. they know. I mean, like I, nobody talks about it, but they know exactly what I'm doing and I'm just, I'm just sitting there in, in embarrassment. Dude, I'm, I'm with you. And it's funny because I literally, this is how I make a living is making podcasts. But yeah. like, I don't like, yeah, people are like, you should make more TikToks. I'm like, no way. It's hard. No it's way. hard to get yourself to do that. Yeah. It's yeah. it's it's hard to even do to record a podcast on video. <laughs> so yeah, I'm I'm with you. Well, but thank you. Thank you. I'm glad thank we you. got to do this. Yeah, thanks for having uh, me. yeah, man. Thanks again. We'll see ya. All right. Bye. You've been listening to Blamo. Our show is produced by Blamo Media. We're edited by Amar Lull, and our theme music as always by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. If you like what you heard, you know the drill. Share the pod with a friend. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify. You can follow us on Instagram for all the hot content. If you want to talk to us and give us your hot take, we'd love to hear from you. You can send us an email at info at blamopod.com. Last but not least, if you want to hang out with us and join the Blam Fam, yes, I said that word, visit patreon.com forward slash blamo, where we have tons and tons of exclusive episodes from exclusive shows like Blamo Presents Derek Guy to the Triple J Show featuring G and Delion, John Moy, and yours truly. Last but not least, the amazing Slack community. All the crew, we're just in there. We're talking about shoes and socks and all sorts of whatever dumb things you can imagine and all the things that, uh, it's great. Whatever. Join it. Check it out. Uh, I love the Slack. It's, it, it's amazing. All right. That's it for me, folks. See you soon.